Friends, at this time in the service, we want to open our Bibles. We're nearing the end of a, a study of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to begin in chapter 14. We're going to move into chapter 15. And uh, we're just going to touch a number of passages rather than go through verse by verse. Uh, one of the reasons we're speeding up just a little bit is because, believe it or not, the last Sunday of November is the first Sunday of Advent. The Christmas season is just around the corner. And so we want to, we want to draw a line under Mark and just, uh, finish this wonderful time together, uh, looking at the life of Jesus revealed to us through the Gospel of Mark, uh, before the Advent season and, uh, move into December and focus on uh, the incarnation and the gift that God gave when he gave Jesus. So if you have your Bible with me, open it to Mark chapter 14. And I just want to let you know that today we will just be assuming that you understand and know the background of what's happening here. This is a familiar story. It begins with Jesus as we left him last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, that place of pressure, that place of suffering as he prays in his humanity, Father, if it be possible to let this cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath on the sin of mankind pass by, let it do so, but not my will, yours be done. And through prayer, Jesus overcame that trial, that great test, and he woke up the disciples, and the last thing he tells them, he says, everybody wake up now, uh, the betrayer is at hand. My arrest is here. And Jesus had predicted what was going to happen. He told us that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. And that's what we see. The twelve, the disciples, they go all different directions into the night. A few follow as close as possible, but most we don't see them again until, uh, until after uh, the resurrection. They head for the hills. And Jesus is left alone with his betrayer and his accusers. And throughout this, we see in these chapters, it's difficult to see as people have been drawn to Jesus, as the gospel tells us in the gospel of John, Jesus himself said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus had that ability. He taught like nobody else. He taught with authority. He spoke to us where we lived and told us the good news of God's love. He uh, had time for everyone. Those who were beneath the notice of everybody else, nobody was beneath Jesus' notice. And yet, throughout his ministry, we've seen from early in the chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had enemies, those who were threatened by his message. He wanted people to move beyond the practice of human religion and move to a living relationship with his Father. And he, as the Savior, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, had come to take away the sin of the world. So those who had their lives invested in religion, whether the synagogue or the temple, they were threatened by Jesus. This message was uh, completely different than anything they expected. And very quickly, they became his opponents and then his enemies. And very soon, they were even seeking to have his life taken. We see that come to a head here as well. Jesus is arrested by the temple guard, not Roman soldiers, but the Jewish people were allowed to have policemen, Jewish policemen that would police the temple precinct. And they were at the beck and call of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. 
And we see them come into the picture today. They're arrested. They take Jesus into the upper city, to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. He is examined. There's a kangaroo court. They don't have the power to put anyone to death, but they decide then to take him in the next morning to the uh, Fortress Antonia, where the Roman governor Pontius Pilate is there. He examines Jesus finds no reason to condemn him, sends Jesus over to the palace of Herod Antipas. He tries to examine Jesus. Jesus refuses to even talk to him. Uh, he goes back to Pilate. Pilate wants to release Jesus. But then the Sanhedrin say, if you don't condemn this man as we've asked you to, we'll communicate with your superiors at headquarters in Rome that you're disloyal. You're no friend of Caesar. You're lifting up another king other than Caesar. Well, that forces Pilate's hand and he condemns Jesus to death. Next week, we pick up looking at the next few weeks, the suffering, the uh, crucifixion, and the resurrection, the good news of Easter morning. But today, all of those events on that dark night where it seemed Everyone, beginning with the scattered disciples and ending with uh, Pontius Pilate washing his hands of the matter and turning Jesus over to be crucified, it seems everybody abandons him. Jesus rejected. Now, as shocking as this seems, if you just had the Gospel of Mark and read through it, it was predicted and foretold from old, from God's Word, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It's quoted often in the New Testament that Jesus, you can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. He is like a fork in the road. There's a broad way leading to destruction. There's a narrow gate and a narrow road and few find it. And that's Jesus in his offer of life. You can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. It likens Jesus to a stone Either it's a stone that becomes the foundation of your life and you stand on it and you're saved. Or it's a stone that trips you and you're destroyed. It becomes a stumbling stone for you. But you can't be neutral. In 1 Peter, Peter writes, quoting one of these Old Testament passages, in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Speaking of believers... Peter writes, now to you who believe this stone, talking about Jesus in that metaphor, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Is Jesus precious to you? Is he the foundation of your life? Or is he someone that you don't care for? You reject. You're indifferent to. You neglect him. You can't be neutral. You choose to have faith in him as your savior. Or he's the stumbling stone for you. So I've called the message today, The Stumbling Stone. It's one of those lesser-known titles of Jesus in the Bible. At my father's home down in Texas, he has a poster, beautiful poster, and it has all the names of Jesus. So many names. Savior, Lion of Judah, the Vine. 
All of the names of Jesus are listed on that poster in a beautiful, artistic way. I've got to look close to it. I don't recall if the stumbling stone was one of those listed names. But it should be, because this is who Jesus is. This is one of the roles he plays in human experience and in God's salvation history. We're going to see today people who reject Jesus. Now, part of me can't understand it. I, I, I use one of those old pastoral metaphors, like those illustrations that we hear so often we just take them for granted. It's like somebody floating down a beautiful river. One of the things they do in Texas, because it's so hot at different times of the year, all the young people, they get rubber inner tubes, they inflate them, and they float down the river. Perhaps you've watched the Texas Game Warden show where they're out there in their little kayaks checking people for intoxication and so forth. There's like enormous parties and revelry on the river as they float in the cool water. Now imagine somebody floating down. You see the people enjoying their life. They're floating by you. And you know that around the bend is a waterfall. An enormous waterfall. And at the foot of the falls are jagged rocks nobody can survive. What do you do? Well, I'm sure you'd call to them. Try to get them to come to shore to save themselves. Perhaps you would throw a rope to them. And the people look at you and they don't care for you. They look at the rope and they reject ropes on principle. And so they just neglect it completely and on they float. Now, who could understand somebody who would do that? It'd be hard, but that's just a theoretical picture. What the Bible does, it gives us individual, real flesh and blood people and allows us to step into their shoes just for a moment and try to understand why they reject God's offer of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who could reject that offer? But we do every day. Let's look first. First, we begin with Judas. Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. As we've seen Judas the last couple of weeks, we'll be reminded of some of those passages today. We pick up the story just where we left off. Garden of Gethsemane. The torches are coming through the trees. The footsteps of the temple guard can be heard. Jesus rouses up the disciples, tells everybody his betrayer is at hand. We begin in Mark chapter 14, verse 43. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. The betrayal of Jesus. Judas does this. And his name, Judas Iscariot, becomes a byword. When you hear that name, you think of betrayal. You think of one who betrays their master with a kiss. Judas. 
who has anything good to say about him. Though, to be honest, in recent years, and even in Bible encyclopedias, people trying to fathom how Judas could do this betrayal, they try to give him uh, noble motives, like he was a political revolutionary and wanted to force Jesus' hand to save Israel from the Romans. On and on they go like that. But there's no evidence for that biblically. In fact, it's just the opposite. Whenever Judas' fellow disciples, those who are among the twelve, write or speak of Judas, it's always negative. And when they think of his eternal destiny, they think that he has gone to damnation. They say he has gone where he belonged. They seem harsh. But they were crushed when Judas betrayed them. One of the inner circle, one of the trusted ones, one of the twelve. And yet Jesus... We see in Scripture, he always knows the motives of people's hearts. So how could he choose Judas? Allow a snake into the group. How could he allow a fox into the hen house? Somebody he must have known would do this. In fact, Scripture reveals to us that Jesus knew exactly what Judas had planned to do. In John chapter 6, dealing with his disciples, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, Jesus says, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Jesus, in dealing with them, uh, they, they had just professed that though everyone else had deserted Jesus, they would never do it. They stood as a group. And Jesus tells them, hold your horses. I chose you. I know one of you is a devil. That must have caused a few uh, thoughts to cross their mind. Like, who could that be? What is he talking about? In fact, he's not saying that one of them was a, was a fallen angel, a demonic entity. He says, one of you is basically of the devil. Now, in the Gospel of John, we see that a number of times. Jesus, in debates with uh, his fellow Jews. They often claim, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're sons of the devil. You're like your father, the devil. This is the claim he's making about Judas here. And whenever Jesus does that, what is he getting at? He's getting at a person who has the same attitudes as Satan. Satan who chose himself above God who rejected God to his face, was caught up in his pride and put himself first and fell from his lofty position. When we put self first above all others, even rejecting Jesus to his face, Judas reveals there he truly was walking in Satan's footsteps. He was like a son of the devil, putting himself First. Well, that was borne out as we saw last week. Remember, our, just, just in the last few weeks as we saw Jesus being anointed and the disciples being upset that such a costly gift was used to anoint Jesus' head and his feet. Remember in John chapter 12, Judas speaks up, verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor. It was worth a year's wages. 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's Judas of the devil, helping himself. It was all about him. That's the picture Scripture gives him. We don't know everything that went on in his mind. We know that when he left the upper room to betray Jesus, it says that Satan entered into him, whether he prompted him or something more. We're not sure. But we know Judas was always walking in the devil's footsteps. And yet Jesus allowed him to be here to play that role that was vital in taking Jesus to the cross. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Judas saw what his actions brought about. And he had seen Jesus on more than one occasion seem to slip any snare set for him. Whether it be in Nazareth, where he just walked through the crowd who sought to throw him off a cliff and he was spared. A man who couldn't drown, he walked upon the waves in the Sea of Galilee. Part of Judas had to have thought, no matter what I do, he can get out of this but I can make a profit on it while he's doing it. Well, Judas saw that Jesus was not seeking to escape the snare. Jesus was going to the cross and he experienced regret and remorse. In fact, Matthew 27 tells us in verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. He ended a suicide from the remorse that he had experienced. Now the important thing is, we don't see Judas repent. He was remorseful, but he never sought forgiveness or repentance, as we see later this morning. He was a broken man, and he went and hung himself. Now this brings very clearly to mind what Jesus had said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus was in the temple courts and he was being tested by the religious leaders. They were asking him, where do you get off? What authority do you have to say the things you say and do the type of things you do like clearing the temple, tipping over money tables? And Jesus says, well, John the Baptist, remember him? He says, where was his baptism? Heaven or of man? And they knew how popular John was, though he had lost his life by then at the hands of Herod Antipas, and they wouldn't answer. He said, well, if you won't answer, I won't tell you what authority I have. But then Jesus goes on, and he tells them something important about himself, quoting the scripture of the stumbling stone. Verse 42 of Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. 
But he on whom it falls will be crushed. And that's what happened to Judas. Now people have different views of what it meant to fall in the stone and be broken as opposed to being crushed. To be crushed, literally in the original language, it means to be ground to powder. That is eternal damnation. That is lost. Lost forever. If you reject Jesus, the stone, He becomes a stumbling stone. And yet there are those who encounter Jesus and it breaks them. It may break their human pride who thinks they're better than these weak-kneed Christians. It may break besetting sin. There's many things in our lives that need to be broken when we come to Jesus. Many strongholds need to be torn down. But Jesus will rebuild you. It's no accident that as He lived among us, He was a carpenter. He's a carpenter that can tear down walls and rebuild you to be like Him. Broken or crushed, Judas, the betrayer, who put himself first at every point, was crushed. His focus was the wrong focus. It was Always on self. And he had the Son of God as a traveling companion, a teacher. He would have been his friend. But his focus was in the wrong place. Well, we won't just want to tarry with Judas this morning. That's pretty downbeat. But we also want to see that Jesus had an encounter with the high priest, Caiaphas. Part of a family, a family that controlled the, the nation for so long. And when he came to the high priest, Jesus, betrayed by Judas, was then condemned by the high priest. The whole Sanhedrin, they came together, they condemned him. Back to Mark chapter 14, picking up the story in verse 60. It says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. There's the name of Jesus, the great I am. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes. Why would do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. They all condemned him. Jesus put on a... Sort of a trial. It was an illegal trial. No trial and even religious examination could take place at night after dark. And yet in their rush, not to be seen by the crowd, but to do the deeds of darkness at night, they 
put him on trial. And all the witnesses against him, their testimonies, they conflicted, they opposed one another. Nobody could find anything that he was worthy of punishment until he admitted that not only was he the Messiah, but he was the Son of God himself claiming divinity. Obviously, they felt that was blasphemy. Because long before they had rejected Jesus, he had been a stumbling block to them. He had been a thorn in their side for years at this point. He had been a threat to the house of cards, which was their religious life that these men lived. Now remember, these people, not only did they make their living from Judaism, religion, now we know this is the this is the true God they were worshiping. And many of the people, they loved God and worshiped Him in spirit and truth. But these leaders seem to be more concerned about themselves, especially men like the Pharisee. Jesus says that in their pride, they took more pride in following the rules of the law than having a heart that was soft toward God. They were legalists proud legalists and Jesus offering a relationship with God rather than human religion was tipping over their apple cart. Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul amazingly describes this very group of people. What then shall we say, Paul Paul begins in Romans 9.30, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, and this is summed up in that leadership, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's the stumbling stone. If you reject Jesus, you fall over him to your doom. But if you put your faith in him, you're saved. But they didn't want a faith of the heart. They wanted a religion of the hands. Something you could do. Didn't matter what your heart was like. Isn't that what Jesus called them up for time and again in the Sermon on the Mount? (laughs) He says, you say, don't murder. But I say in your heart, if you hate someone, that's murder. Jesus always took it to the heart. And they wanted no part of that. It all depends on the faith. In opposition to them, this isn't just the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament speaks of putting our faith in that God, not trusting to the works of man. One of the most beautiful Psalms is Psalm 61. I remember the old spiritual, the old song that goes along with it. Verse 2, from the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
Friends, in this year of uncertainty, this year of pandemic, this year just seems upside down. The world seems crazy some days. We need to pray that prayer again. Lord, lead us to the rock that is higher than I. Jesus, the foundation of our salvation, to stand upon that rock by faith rather than trusting in the works of man. And that's where it comes down. Just as Judas had the wrong focus in himself rather than God, they had the wrong faith. Their faith was in themselves through their pride, their religious works, rather than putting their faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus. And we finish this morning with that familiar but oh-so-sad story. Jesus, who had been betrayed and condemned that same night, one of his best friends, denied even knowing him. He was denied by Peter. A few weeks ago, earlier in this uh, <clears throat> pandemic time, we, we looked at the road from Easter to Pentecost. And one of the stops along the way, if you remember, was the shore of Galilee, the campfire Jesus had fish cooking, where he restored Peter to his place of ministry. This calls that to mind. Mark chapter 14, we read Peter, the story. We'll go through it very quickly. Beginning in verse 66. Peter, who had already claimed that he would never desert Jesus. Peter, who had already tried to back it up by fighting and dying for Jesus at the time of the arrest, pulling out the sword. We don't often think of them carrying weapons, but they did. Peter carried a sword and he tried to cut off the high priest servant's ear, just got his ear. Jesus said, put that sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He healed the servant and he went to what awaited him. Peter, crestfallen that he couldn't even get that right, couldn't fight and die for Jesus, followed at a distance as John went into the high priest's house, probably having some familial connections. Peter, out in the courtyard by firelight. We pick up the story. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. <clears throat> but he denied it. I don't know <clears throat> or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. <laughs> it's kind of comical because Galileans had a very rough rural accent compared to the sophisticated people of Jerusalem. They saw them a, a bunch of hillbillies. Say, you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. He denied him. He disowned him. He had taken a sword and would have fought to the death. But the accusations of a little servant girl 
coward and denied he even knew Jesus. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We're reminded of that hard truth Jesus taught. And it seems to apply to this passage. Jesus had told them earlier in verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. It seems that Peter's done for, that he's somehow lost his salvation, for he's disowned Jesus. He's denied him. Now, has Jesus denied Peter, knowing him in heaven? I think this speaks of our eternal state. If you've lived your life rejecting Jesus, being indifferent to Jesus, claiming not to know Him or care about knowing Him, at the end of the day, Jesus won't confess you as a child of God in heaven. But Peter, unlike Judas, Peter was not just remorseful, he was heartbroken. He had denied and hurt the one he loved. And we see in that second campfire, not the one in the courtyard, but the one by the lake in Galilee, that Peter publicly before the others was restored to his place of ministry. Peter, who had repented of what he had done, was so sorry for it, found forgiveness and restoration, as we will as well. A beautiful story, those verses in John 21, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished eating, they're outside, but there's an elephant in the room. They all knew that Peter had denied Jesus, that his public boasting had been brought to shame. But when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter's love had failed him in that dark night. He'd put love of self and what others thought of him before his love of Jesus. But now he's called back to that. He confesses it. He finds forgiveness and restoration. Jesus who keeps his promises that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He did it for Peter. And we close with that verse today. He will do it for us. Just as Judas had the wrong focus, it was on self. And the high priest had a faith in his works rather than in Christ. Peter, he feared the wrong thing. 
He was afraid of the opinion of a little girl and the people, the servants in the courtyard. Afraid of what others think of us. How many times you've kept quiet as a Christian, you haven't confessed Jesus because what people might think of you. When truly, we should be more concerned about what Jesus thinks of us. We feared the wrong thing. Remember what it says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Putting Him first and His opinion of us, that needs to come first. Oh, we're thankful that Jesus forgives. If Judas had come to Him on bended knee, Jesus would have forgiven him. But He rejected that just as He had put Himself first so many times. He took care of the problem Himself. Once and for all. As it says in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John writes many years later. I'll begin a little earlier in verse 10 of the preceding chapter. John writes, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. (laughs) The atoning sacrifice. He's paid the price for our sin. Go to Him and confess it and find that cleansing. Go today. Today we've seen people reject Jesus, abandon Jesus, deny and disown Jesus because of a wrong focus, a wrong faith, or a misplaced fear. That puts it closer to home. I understand these people because I've been there in my life. And I know you have too. But I thank God for His Word that atoning love of Jesus, that we find forgiveness, restoration, and we continue to follow Him today and all of our tomorrows. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we think of people on a metaphorical river floating to destruction, who could understand rejecting a salvation? And yet, Lord, because of pride and fear and the opinion of others, are just putting ourselves first. Earthly pleasure. Lord, we reject Jesus every day. Father, open our eyes. Lord, help us to see the great love of Christ. Lord, may our feet follow in Jesus' steps. May our heart beat with Jesus' heartbeat. Lord, we thank You for Your Son who went through that dark night. Lord, we often think of Gethsemane as that great test. But one after another, those who should have stood by Him rejected Him and turned away until finally, Lord, He alone bore our sins to the cross. Lord, we thank You for Your Son. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.